1: Welcome to another episode of Vulgar History, the feminist women's history comedy podcast with me, your host, Anne Foster. And today is the eighth Eighth? and final episode of this season, which has had the theme, women trapped in towers and the assholes who put them there. And this is a surprise episode for me, and I guess not for you, because I told you last week I would be doing another episode But I had seven stories all figured out. And then, out of nowhere, I found... I don't even remember how I came across this image. Just one of the zillion cool history image accounts I follow on Instagram. I have to assume I saw a portrait of a woman. And I was like, wait, who is this? And then I started reading about her. And I was like, wait, this is a great story. And so here we are doing a sudden podcast about it. I usually up until now every season I've gone have I well I guess not the first season but I usually like to go in chronological order so I can sort of explain where people are in the history as related to the other women we're talking about this is going back a bit um this all happened long before the saga of Sophia Dorothea that we talked about last week and who we are talking about is doña anna de mendoza de la cerda y de silva cifuentes princess of eboli duchess of pastrana a woman with 11 words in her name and a goddamn eye patch on her beautiful face so my references are wikipedia an article from queencityclassicalfencing.com by scott wright called the princess and the eye patch why did a fencing blog write about her we'll explain um, an article from Daily Art magazine by Joanna Kasubalska called Rebellious Princess of Eboli. And then an article called Difficulties with a Capricious Princess Led to Inquisition for St. Teresa of Avila from Nobility.org. And then also, we're going to be talking about um, St. Teresa of Avila, or potentially it's pronounced Avila. So I researched her a bit on Catholic.org. So here's the deal. I'm gonna put a picture of her up on the Instagram at the same time this episode is published so you can just understand what I'm talking about but it is a glamorous every portrait of her is a glamorous beautiful woman dark hair pale skin from the 16th century and she is wearing a goddamn eye patch like not a subtle eye patch like a full-on like black like is she a pirate like eye patch in every portrait. And that's where I was like, wait, what is going on with this eye patch lady? And the story is great. And here we go. So, Doña Ana de Mendoza de la Cerda y de Silva Sifuentes was born on June 29th, 1540. And from what I can ascertain, Doña is the Spanish way of saying Lady Anna. So, we're just going to call her Anna or Ana, I guess. She was... So this is, we're dipping back into, this is, uh, when we talked about, ooh, what was her name? Isabel of Portugal, um, Isabella of Castile, like we're getting into that period of time where there's all these little, uh, the, the relationship between the various kingdoms of Spain and with Portugal, and they kind of go back and forth quite a bit. And honestly, after reading Anna's story and after reading Isabella's story, and then I've been reading about, um, king enrique the fourth aka el impotente because i'm going to be doing a special podcast about that on patreon i'm just like i think i've i'm in a mood to really lean into this kind of like spanish and portuguese 16th century situation because everything is just like wildly interesting it's like i don't know if this is more interesting than like Tudor era england or if it's just like i know so much about Tudor era england it kind of doesn't surprise me anymore but this is like Everything is just ratcheted up. The drama, the assassinations, everything is so extreme compared to other history I've read. I'm just like, "Mm, I need to like read much more about the history of Spain and Portugal. So, Anna was born, 1540. Just to put us in a time and place, let me just see. Queen Elizabeth I of England was born, 1533. So we're looking at a similar time period to that is when Anna was, was a child and growing up. But across across the pond, over in, um, well, she was born in Spain. I think Spain had united by now under Isabella and Ferdinand. So Ana was the daughter of Diego Hurtado de Mendoza de la Cerda, Duke of Francovia, and Prince of Melito, Viceroy of Aragon. And her mother was Doña Maria Catalina de Silva y Andrande, Countess de Cifuentes. So that's why... Anna's name has all those words in it because it's all of her parents' titles. So she was, therefore, a little baby and a member of the powerful Spanish noble house of Mendoza. Ana endured what appears to be a dysfunctional home life as a child, including the embarrassment of her father's infamous philandering, something not accepted in 16th century Spain, which was, like, a very Catholic place to be. And, well, the thing is, like, When I say very Catholic place to be, it's like, yes, but also weren't all the popes like having lovers and was Catholic, like, it's not to say like mm, very Catholic and that meant everyone was behaving really well, but it's just like publicly everyone was supposed to be very, um, I think this was during, after the whole Isabella of Castile was the queen, like she really enforced a certain, kind of like Queen Victoria in the Victorian period, just kind of like, here's my expectation that everybody should behave very well all the time. Sonia, her father infamous philanderer not uh, caused some scandal obviously uh, little is known of anna's childhood but she was described as passionate intelligent religious and rebellious in her youth and then here's a section i call the fencing incident so it is alleged that around age 12 she lost her right eye in a fencing duel with a servant Numerous and widespread explanations for Anna's eye patch abound. However, absolutely no evidence has come to light to support these claims. But she did always wear a black eye patch in all of her portraits, and this seemed to accentuate and add to her great beauty and appeal, and that's the thing. If myself and I think the other people who wrote essays that I read about this, all the essays kind of start with like, so I saw a picture of this sixteenth century Spanish noblewoman with an eye patch, and I was like, Who is this? And I'm like, That is Exactly what happened to me as well. I was just like, wait, what's going on with this eye patch? So it really added to her mystique and beauty. So this was maybe a fencing accident, but it may also have been a horse accident or maybe a congenital eye condition such that. So in 2012, and I'm not sure who paid for this, but Dr. Enrique Santos-Bueso of the Neurological Unit in the Ophthalmology Department at the University Hospital Clinico San Carlos examined he was hired to do this I do not know why um, but I'm glad they did because here's some info he examined Anna's portraits and contemporaneous writings about her to try and figure out what happened to her eye and he's an ophthalmologist so he looked at her portraits and saw what people wrote about her and he was just like this is I didn't write all the quotes from him but he was kind of like this is really hard to do because paintings have artistic license and I don't know like is that what her you know eye Other eye looked like, etc. But ultimately, he determined it was likely a traumatic injury, rather than a congenital condition. So maybe a fencing incident or a horse incident. Something happened to her eye, and she lost her eye. But that's based on looking at portraits. So like, what? So she potentially uh, might have had a lazy eye. There, as there are records showing that she, when she was reading, she relied upon reading aids like large test text and writing stencils which could indicate that she had um farsightedness which could mean that she had eye issues which means she could have had a lazy eye or maybe like a crossed eye and so she covered her eye with an eye patch so because she just thought that looked cooler than having a lazy eye but i don't know like if you wanted people to not know she had a lazy eye the eye patch is a bold distraction and does not take attention away from her eye so so we don't actually know but rumor has it legend has it that she lost her her right eye in a fencing incident and the article i read on the um, fencing website did note like well this was before there was safety equipment required for fencing but also it sounds like she's just a 12 year old badass who just like challenged a servant to a fencing match and then lost her eye so even if there was you know, fencing safety equipment. I don't know if she would have used it. When she was 13, a little girl with one eye, a marriage was arranged for her to the Portuguese nobleman, Rui Gomez de Silva, the first prince of Eboli. This marriage was um, arranged, or at least recommended by the prince regent, who is a man who is, he would later become King Felipe II, at this one, he's just like Infanta Felipe II, who is just to connect the dots of like everyone we've talked about in the podcast, he is the grandson of Juana of Castile. So, the great grandson of Isabella of Castile. So, Rui, who is this husband, he had grown up alongside Felipe, and the two were bros for life. Rui was also the king's personal secretary and a lifelong ride or die BFF bro. He was also 37 years old, and Ana was 13. So this arranged marriage brought Anna to royal court for the first time. And you can imagine the sensation of this beautiful 13-year-old with an eye patch showing up. Her husband's wealth and influence provided for financial security and titles. So due to his influence in the Spanish court, Ruy, her husband, which is spelled R-U-Y, if you're wondering what how I'm pronouncing this, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, he was known among foreign ambassadors as Ray Gomez II, which is King Gomez, instead of his name Rui Gomez, because he was so powerful, so they called him like the king because he was so influential. So Anna married this extraordinarily influential person and she became well established at royal court. The marriage seemingly was not consummated or at least Anna did not have any children until she was 18, after which she gave birth to the first of what would be 10 children who all survived. The 10th was born when she was 33, so she's just like having babies one after another. One year after Anna had her first child, King Felipe, who is the king now, got married. So he had been married twice before, and then he just took his third wife because I guess the first two wives died. I assume. I've not read up on it. But notably, his third wife was Elizabeth de Valois, who was the oldest daughter of Catherine de Medici and the older sister of Queen Margot, who we all know. Elizabeth was five years younger than Anna, so they were cool young teens together and became close friends. At this point, some people, and we, it's the same thing we see over and over again, where it's just like she was an interesting woman who got involved in various political situations, so people who did not like her uh, got to writing some history, alleging things she did. So, like, did she do these things, or did people just not like her and they made up lies about her? I don't know, but some people alleged that Anna became a mistress of the king and she might have but maybe not if she had then some of her 10 children were maybe actually his children but like again I I don't know I do not know you know when I hear people might have been sleeping together my I generally always sat on the side of like yeah they probably were because why not but here I feel like were they I don't know anyway um, whether fictional or otherwise, these allegations have helped fuel dramatic and largely fictional stories on stage and screen, because we'll talk later, but there's like various plays and movies about Anna's life and her eye patch mystique. And around this time, her parents, who remember had this horrible marriage where the father was philandering, um, her parents became further estranged and her father left his mother to be with his mistress. So this is part of why, just to get a little armchair psychology, I think having seen her parents go through all this stuff with her father having these affairs and it, this is why I don't know if Anna would have had an affair. I don't know. But at the same time, it's a king. So maybe she would have. Anyway. So her husband, Rui, worked to secure their children's, their 10 children's future by purchasing the town of Eboli in Naples on Italy's Southeast coast, as well as several villas. And that's why he became the Prince of Eboli. He was also granted the title Duke of Pastrana and Grandee of Spain by his bro Philippe in 1572. So this meant that Anna was now princess of Iboli and the first duchess of Pastrana. Rui died in 1573, the same year that their 10th child was born. So Anna at this point was a widowed single mother of 10, just 33 years old, had a sexy eye patch and was a princess in grief. Anna and her mother moved to the San Jose convent in Pastrana, which Anna had helped fund a few years earlier. And this is where we get into some info re Teresa of Avila. So this convent had been founded and was run by Teresa Ali Fatim Corella Sanchez de Capeda y Ahumada, who had later, like not that much later, but after she died, she would later become Saint Teresa of Avila, who is, as a saint, the patron saint of Headaches, of which, spoiler, Anna became to her. Anna was a huge headache to St. Teresa. So while staying at this convent, Anna became known as the Princess Nun, because she was a princess, and she was also kind of being a nun. So Teresa had been born in 1515. So she's 30-ish years older than Anna. Teresa, her father, was rigidly honest and pious, but he may have carried his strictness to extremes. Her mother loved romance novels, but because her husband objected to these books, she hid the books from him. This put Teresa in the middle, especially since she liked romance novels, too. Her father told her never to lie, but her mother told her not to tell her father, so she was just in the middle of this, like, feels, frankly, very modern situation torn between her two parents. So, Teresa. When she was seven years old, she convinced her older brother that they should go off to the land of the Moors which I think is Turkey and beg them out of love to God to cut off our heads there. So she wanted to go and like martyr themselves. They got as far as the road from the city before an uncle found them and brought them back. So again, Teresa, who is the woman who owns the convent where Anna goes, was clearly a headstrong person as well. As a teenager, Teresa cared only about boys, clothing, flirting, and rebelling. When she was 16, her father decided she was out of control and sent her to a convent. At first, she hated it, but eventually she began to enjoy it, partly because of her growing love for God and partly because the convent was less strict than her dad. Still, when the time came for her to choose between marriage and religious life, she had a tough time making the decision. She'd watched a difficult marriage ruin her mother, or the arguments between her parents. On the other hand, being a nun didn't seem like much fun. She finally chose a religious life... And she did it because she thought it was the only safe place for someone as prone to sin as she was. So she was, like, rebellious and didn't take well to authority and, like, boys in clothes and flirting. But she, like, didn't like that about herself. And so she was just like, mm, I'm a bad person. So I should become a nun because that's the best place for me. For eight, the next 18 years, Teresa tried to be as good a nun as possible but found it challenging. Part of the reason for her trouble... Was that the convent was not what she thought it would be like? Like she thought this would be like a very um, monastic place where you know everyone's just praying all the time, and you know there's no there's no clothes or boys or fashion to distract us. However, many women who had no place else to go wound up at the convent, whether they wanted to be nuns or not, they just kind of like showed up there. These women were encouraged to stay away um, from the convent to cut down on expenses because too many people were going there. Um, What Teresa saw was that nuns would arrange their veils attractively and wear jewelry. Prestige depended not on piety, but on money. So it was just the same like um, strict class divisions that there were in the world. Um, There was a steady stream of visitors in the parlor and parties that included young men. Um, So really, this convent she ended up at sounds a lot like a university dorm type situation what spiritual life there was involved hysteria weeping exaggerated penance nosebleeds and self-induced visions so she was just like this is not for me at the same time she was very popular and she liked to be liked she found it easy to slip into quote a worldly life which is just like falling back into liking boys and flirting and jewelry and clothes um let's see teresa got involved in flattery vanity and gossip Then she fell ill with malaria. When she had a seizure from the malaria, it seemed so obvious that she was dead that after she woke up four days later, she learned they had actually dug a grave for her because they thought she was literally dead. Afterwards, she was paralyzed for three years and never got completely well yet. Instead of helping her spiritually get closer to God, her sickness became an excuse for her to stop praying completely. So when she was 41 a priest convinced her to like start doing praying again it just sounds this whole thing is just like "Mm." you know i was reading this and i'm like how did she become a saint like this doesn't sound like the sort of behavior that gets rewarded by becoming a saint anyway um when she was 41 a priest convinced her to try praying again and she did and it turns out now she's really good at it for instance things would happen like her whole body was raised from the ground if she felt like God was going to levitate her, she stretched out on the floor and called the nuns to sit on her and hold her down. Um, but she was not excited about the fact that she was having magic God things. Um, she begged God very much not to do this anymore in public. But still, her she was still really very much dependent on friendships and being around other people. And that was getting in the way of her being like a good nun or whatever. She was very attached to her friends until God told her, apparently directly... No longer do I want you to converse with human beings, but with angels. And then through that advice, she got the freedom that she'd been unable to achieve before. And so she gave up all her friends and God came first in her life. Um, Her friends, though, were like, wait, we don't like this. So they did not like what was happening to her. And they got together to discuss some remedy for her. Concluded she had been deluded by the devil. They sent a Jesuit priest to analyze her. The Jesuit reassured her that the experiences were from God, but soon everyone was making fun of her. This just sounds like not, this is not a cool convent like in Whoopi Goldberg and Sister Act. This is just like, and she's been here for such a long time. I'm just like, maybe move on. Like, is this the place for you, Teresa? So one confessor, like I guess a priest she went to, was so sure that her visions were from the devil that he told her to make an obscene gesture called the fig. I don't know what that is. So let's just imagine like, raising your middle finger. Every time she had a vision of Jesus. What? Why? Um she did that but didn't like doing that. Jesus wasn't upset, but Jesus again apparently directly told her that she was right to do what she was told. I don't. Okay. Um so she's conversing directly with God and Jesus, but people are like, mm, "Maybe it's the devil." Um and everybody around her was just being like, "LOL Teresa, she's so weird." Um, and then that did get to her, even though she didn't have human friends anymore, only angels. It did bother her, so she um <laughs> uh she complained to her closest friend about the hostility, so she still did have one friend apparently, and gossip that surrounded her and everyone was making fun of her. Um, and then Jesus I don't know if Jesus is the person she was complaining to. Anyway, literally Jesus told her, Teresa, that's how I treat my friends and Teresa responded, No wonder you have so few friends jesus like reading this story made me feel like i need to read maybe some more stories about people who became saints because what a saga um so anyway she decided after this convo with her bff jesus that she needed to reform her order of nuns which were the carmelite nuns so age 43 Teresa became determined to found a new convent that went back to the basics of a contemplative order, like people who just do praying and not all this other stuff. A simple life of poverty devoted to prayer. Um, When plans leaked out about her first convent, St. Joseph's, she was denounced from the pulpit, told by her sisters she should raise money for the convent she was already in instead of inventing her own one, and was threatened with the Spanish Inquisition, which was still a thing that was happening. Remember when... um, Isabella and Ferdinand started or like really sped things up with that. So the Spanish Inquisition, which were just the Catholic people who would like torture people who they thought weren't being Catholic in the right way. So in fact, the town started legal proceedings against her. But in the face of all of this, she went around calmly as if nothing was wrong because God and her BF, Jesus had told her to do this. And so she knew it was the right thing to do. And she did end up creating the convent of St. Joseph's where she spent most of her time writing her life story, her autobiography. She wrote this book not for fun, but because she was ordered to, I guess, by God. Um, many people questioned her experiences. Oh, no. Um, oh, maybe she wasn't ordered to by God. Maybe she was ordered to by the Spanish Inquisition. Anyway, many people questioned her experiences, and this book would clear her or condemn her. So because of this, she used a lot of vague writing in her book following a profound thought with the statement but what do i know i'm just a wretched woman oh she was ordered okay the inquisition told her to write her life story sort of like testimony so the inquisition read it and they liked it and so they cleared her they said guess what you're not an infidel or whatever by now she's aged 51 and teresa felt it was time to spread her movement of having nuns go back to the basics So she braved burning sun, ice and snow, thieves and rat infested inns to found more convents. And then she was summoned to Pastrana to visit with Ana de Mendoza and her husband Roy and their 10 children. So Teresa arrived dramatically in a cart covered with curtains. And when she arrived, Ana's mother fell on her knees and beat upon her breasts because she was so excited to see her. So, Roy and Anna had invited Teresa to town to found a monastery for men and a convent of barefoot nuns for women. Anna and Roy were keen to get in Teresa's good books because they'd heard how cool she was and they wanted to elevate their status by hanging out with her. Teresa, though, had been forewarned by the other nuns about what Anna was like in the sense of she had a very difficult personality. In Teresa's memoirs, she says, I found the princess, Anna. And the Prince Rui Gomez, who received me very well, they gave me a private apartment, which was more than I could have expected because the house was so small that the princess had had much of it pulled down and rebuilt, not the walls, but many things. We were there for three months, hard times, the princess asking me things contrary to our religion. I had even determined to leave rather than give in, but the Prince Roy Gomez, in his gentle way, he was very gentle and sensible, made his wife come to reason. So Teresa and Anna, as does not surprise me they're both very strong willed people and they did not get along so teresa did not care for anna's domineering character this was largely because anna wanted to see what teresa looked like but teresa always like 24 hours a day kept a veil over her face so no one could see her face anna and like what could be more relatable i feel like "Mm, i just want to see your face anna just really wanted to see what teresa looked like So she was always peeping through the windows and keyhole, hoping to surprise Teresa in one of her trances, because when Teresa was, like, communing with God and Jesus, maybe her veil would come off, I guess. Uh, Teresa laughed at what she calls Anna's stupidity, but in the end, this constant prying worried and became intolerable to her, which, like, understandable, too, for Teresa. If every time you're in a room by yourself, you have to worry that Anna is, like, peeping through the keyhole, like, that would be annoying. Anna also really wanted to read Teresa's memoirs, and she kept bugging her to try and read the memoirs. When Teresa refused, Anna wrote to Teresa's superiors, like, I guess, the head church people, asking them to order her to let her read the manuscript, and the superiors agreed that she could. So Anna, quote, greedily met, read the memoirs. They excited her imagination, and, like all talkative women, feeling the necessity of imparting her feelings, she um, committed the breach of confidence of giving the manuscript to a bunch of her servants and her ladies-in-waiting and pages so many people read the the memoirs so just this manuscript going around and around uh that eventually the inquisition found out about it and they sent for the book the inquisition kept the memoirs for 10 years and then returned it but not before all this had caused very great annoyance presumably to Teresa Teresa stopped or she left Anna and Rui's place when the convent was finished It was one year later that Rui died. His last moments were aided by two barefooted Carmelite friars who came from Pastrana. So, again, back to Ana. So once Rui died, Ana and her mother decided to move to the San Jose convent that they had helped finance and that they had commissioned Teresa to create. So they arrived with all their luggage and their maids. They demanded to be treated like royalty with servants approaching them on their knees, which is a bit much. But Teresa refused to order the nuns to do this. So she wanted, Anna wanted the nuns to approach her on their knees. So this is like, Anna was thinking it would be sort of like the kind of worldly convent that Teresa hated. But Teresa's convent was very much just like poverty, no shoes. Nobody's treated like royalty. So you can see this is not going to work out well. Although Anna did stay there for three years. Um, after three years, she left the convent and returned to Madrid, even though for reasons I do not know, King Filippi did not want her back there, but she went back anyway, because no one's going to tell her what to do. Not long after this, her mother died and then followed shortly thereafter by her father. However, her father, having married another in an attempt to secure a male heir, because Ana was their only child, had left his second wife pregnant, which threatened Ana's inheritance. So with Roy dead, remember he had been the secretary of the King. The King's new undersecretary of state was Roy's protege, Antonio Perez. Antonio was a married man, just a bit older than Anna. And so Anna and Antonio developed a close relationship, which led people obviously because all these gossips, people alleged they were having an affair, but it may have just been a political thing, but maybe they were having an affair. She was sexy eyepatch lady Their relationship, even their friendship, was apparently hidden from the king. So the king didn't know that they were hanging out with each other. Historians are divided as to why that was the case. Some claimed it was due to impropriety because Antonio was married and they thought the king wouldn't like his married secretary hang out with a single lady. While others claim it was because Anna had renewed her her status of being the king's mistress. And so she didn't want him to know for that reason. We don't know, but what we do know is that Anna continued to correspond with many influential people and expressed her ideas on life, religion, and politics freely, which gained her friends as well as enemies. And then, in 1578, if you're like, and what does this story have to do with women trapped in towers? Like Anna's just like out there living her eyepatch life. But here we go. So in 1578, Antonio Perez instigated the murder of Juan de Escobedo a servant of the king's half-brother, Juan de Austria. So, okay, again, Antonio, Ana's new friend, uh, was behind the murder of a servant of the king's half-brother. And apparently King Felipe had authorized this because his half-brother was up to no good, I guess. But the king was soon overcome with guilt for his having been responsible or having authorized this murder, which, again, he told them to do. To clear his conscience, the king decided to go after the people he held responsible for the murder, which were Antonio and Anna. So Anna was placed under house arrest in 1581, um, kept in her palace in Pastrana, the same place she had hung out spying on Teresa. She was forbidden to see her children or to manage her estate. The king stripped her of her parental rights and property one year later. Anna probably could have begged for forgiveness and it probably would have been granted because this harsh punishment was not typically applied to aristocrats like her. But being a strong-willed person, she decided not to apologize, to bear her punishment and to make her point this way by just being like, you're going to trap me away? Fine, I'll just be trapped away then. This relatively harsh treatment of her compared to other aristocrats helps fuel allegations that the king may be had been having her as a mistress like maybe he was sexually jealous of her maybe being involved with antonio and that's why he treated her badly um what about antonio her like co-conspirator even though again the king told them to do this um so in 1589 10 years after they found out 10 years after the murder antonio was finally charged with the murder this led to riots and unrest by antonio's supporters. Um, so then Antonio escaped to Aragon. In exile, he published scathing, defamatory accounts of King Felipe's court. Assertions of when unchallenged, contributing to the Spanish black legend. What was the Spanish black legend? Tell me, Wikipedia. So the black legend in Spanish, La Leyenda Negra, is a theo, theorized historiographical tendency consisting of anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic propaganda. Um, its roots date back to the 16th century which is what we're in in this story when it was originally a political and psychological weapon that was used by Spain's northern European rivals in order to demonize the Spanish Empire its people and culture minimize Spanish discoveries and achievements and counter its influence and power in world affairs so the assimilation of originally Dutch and English 16th century propaganda into mainstream history is theorized to have fostered an anti Hispanic bias among subsequent historians, along with a distorted view of the history of Spain, Latin America, and other parts of the world. Um, so, this propaganda found its basis in real events during the Spanish conquest of the Americas, which did involve atrocities, but it often employed lurid and exaggerated depictions of violence while ignoring similar behavior by other powers. So, that's what that is. So, Antonio published these defamatory accounts of what king Felipe was up to um and that contributed to the spanish black legend so to people thinking that the spanish royal family of this time was um really awful so anna meanwhile just still in her sort of like screw you i'm not gonna apologize state of mind she spent 13 years imprisoned in her castle died she died on february 2nd 1592 Aged 52, apparently depressed and ill. Do, uh, do we know that? I don't know. Um, so, about her legacy. There's a character called Princess Eboli, based on Anna, in the opera Don Carlos by Verdi. She's also the subject of a novel called That Lady by Kate O'Brien. And in 1955, there was a film adaptation of that novel starring Olivia de Havilland as Anna in a sexy eye patch. And I have not watched that movie, but I'm excited to watch that movie because it looks pretty great. Um, in 2008, Julia Ormond played her in a movie called La Conjura de El Escorial. And then a TV movie in 2010, um, Anna was played by Belen Rueda in a film called La Princesa de Iboli. And then here we go. If you're just like, how much cooler could the story be? In 2018, the children's animated TV show, Arthur, about Arthur the Aardvark, and, you know, his sister DW, is that his friend? Anyway, aired an episode called The Princess Problem, where uh, DW was introduced to Anna as an example of a handicapped princess, explaining that Anna was blinded in a childhood sword fight. So that is... 100% 100% the first person I've talked about on this podcast who then made an appearance on Arthur so you know the legend continues and that is Doña Ana de Mendoza de la Serra y de Silva Cifuentes Princess of Iboli, Duchess of Pastrana a sudden last minute addition to this podcast season and I can't imagine it without her because what a saga well and then this is where I was like oh I don't know if there's enough stuff about her to make a whole podcast episode but then I got the stuff about Teresa and I'm like oh here we go there's lots to talk about here so it's time to score her Anna on our scandalous scale so and then we'll do a rundown of the whole season where everybody fell this season relative to other things so Anna's scandalousness here's the thing the stuff like how she went to the, um. like, did she have the affair with the king? People say maybe she did. Did she have the affair with Antonio? Maybe. Like, just the, the eyepatch in general. Like, just her whole aura feels very scandalous to me. And i mean the fact that she was involved in this murder etc is well that's more scheminess i guess but it's the sort of thing where like for everybody in this season and it's really become so clear to me researching all these women how much of the scandalousness often is just like people who didn't like these women writing stuff about them to make them sound bad and in her case making her sound bad would also was a way to like further demonize the spanish court who maybe politically wanted to make look bad so we don't actually know if Anna had an affair with the king, if she had an affair with Antonio, but she did lose her eye and was gorgeous. So, scandaliciousness, and she, she was involved in a murder, seemingly, but I can't score her too high on that because it's not confirmed if, like, what her involvement was in these things. So I'm just going to give her a six for scandaliciousness, but... um. Scheminess, I feel like is where she might come into her own because of her involvement in this, in the murder of the half brother servant, but then also just to do as well in Royal court as she did inherently would have involved a lot of scheminess and, um, just a lot of schemes I think would have had to be there for her to do as well as she did for people to, to not like her as much as they did. I don't know. I feel like that was maybe just her personality more than her, like, actual schemes. I'm going to give her a six for scheminess as well. Her significance, as per always. Like, I put in this category because for women who maybe weren't scandalous or schemy but have a high level of significance, just so everybody can get a high score in something. But for her, like, her significance is like, well, she had ten children. Did her ten children do cool stuff? Like, I'm sure they did. I didn't research that. But her significance... Like just having this cool eye patch. The fact that people keep finding her—it's like her legend will not go away because she just looks like she looks just as interesting as she was. Her significance level, though, mm, I don't know. But she did. She funded Teresa creating these convents, which was surely significant. Like being one of her patrons. Um, I'm gonna give her a five for significance. The sexism bonus. I'm giving her a ten, like a full ten, and that's because she just the way that, well, like the fact that she and Antonio were both involved in this murder, allegedly, um, and then she ended up being in jail for thirteen years, and he just like went off to like live his life is super sucks. And then, well, just the way that she was treated, like just the the fact that she was treated in this way by everybody because she was, you know, like a strong woman who said what she thought um although like which is not to say she wasn't also an asshole like she wanted the nuns to treat her like royalty and approach her on their knees like when she was also supposed to be a nun like she sounds like a nightmare person but also the double standard of how she was treated versus how antonio was treated that's a 10 so then we get to what's this so that's a 27 for anna which puts her let's see oh right in the middle uh, so, Margaret Pohl from the season also got a 27. Isabel of Portugal also got a 27. So, we'll go through the season. Margaret of Anjou got a 26. Margaret Pohl, Ana de Mendoza, and Isabel of Portugal all got a 27. Arabella Stewart and Margaret Douglas, her grandmother, both got a 28. Sophia Dorothea of Sella, our beloved SD, got a 31. And then Queen Margot marguerite de valois is the top of the charts with a 37.5 the highest score anyone has ever gotten in vulgar history so i think you know i'm happy with the spread of this season like the lowest score 26 highest score 37.5 but really we saw a whole bunch of different kinds of women a whole bunch of different situations as to why they were put in prison and the assholes who put them there so we really got into the the thesis of this season and i'm really happy that i learned about anna because i think she really wraps things up in an interesting way and really is sort of pointing me in this direction of like i feel like if there is another season of the show which i hope there will be but who knows i feel like it might be all like spanish slash portuguese people because this is the drama of it all really interesting well and then teresa falling in here you know we're not scoring teresa but i feel like she's got She's got high marks, at least, just for scheminess. Um, Yeah. So now I'm just like, should I read more about saints? I don't know. Anyway, but I feel like reading more about Spanish and Portuguese people will inherently find me some more saints to read about. So that is this episode. It is the season finale of season four of Vulgar History. Thank you so much for listening. This has been so much fun to do. Um, And... Just a reminder of some things you can look at. So, if you're just like, "No, Anne, don't go away. Any more of your beautiful vocal fry talking about stuff." So, on my Patreon page, which is patreoncom slash Writer, if you pledge money there, um, there is a back. There's an archive of my past bonus episodes there, and then I'm also doing one, at least one bonus episode per month. Um, Often these are the so this asshole spinoff talking about various men often various men who were involved in the stories we did this past season the next one i'm going to be doing is going to be about enrique IV, aka el impotente i'm going to be posting that soon there so if you pledge money on patreon but it's not just like pay money and get podcasts it's like you pay money you get the podcasts but what the money that you pledge goes towards is me having the ability to do more episodes of this podcast so that's super helpful another super helpful thing you can do just to try and um, help the podcast succeed because the better it does the more I am able to devote time to doing more episodes of it the easiest thing you can do is to go into your preferred podcast listening place um, and to rate us five stars and give a nice little review and to subscribe if you're listening somewhere where there's not a place to put reviews, like I know from my stats, a lot of people listen to this on Spotify, for instance, and I don't think there's a place there to review. So you can just like sneak into some other podcast app, like the Apple one or whatever, put a little review there. Like, even if that's not where you listen, super appreciate it. And, um, my merch store is also there. That's another way that the money from the merch goes towards me and this podcast and hopefully being able to do more episodes and also, I have a lot of fun doing it. So if you go to teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history, you get to our merch store. And I wanted to, because I forget if I've already explained this. I have not yet figured out a design for Anna de Mendoza, but I figure it's just going to be like her face. And on top of it, it's going to say tits out. Because not since Frances tits out Howard have I truly come across a woman who just really embodies the spirit of things that I admire anyway so we have various products in there the most recent one I put in um it's a bad French translation of our tagline mask on tits out so it says Masque sir Sandior. Dior you know what because of the, the Ana de Mendoza I feel like maybe I could do that but in Spanish so we'll see that as well there's also you know Botica, Mary Toft Lee Jane Grey Frances Howard, um, just her picture, and it says tits out and a classic. Anyway, um, so that's teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history. And then um, on Instagram, if you want to see, I mean, you could also Google Anna de Mendoza eye Patch. You can see her picture, but I'm going to post a picture of her on Instagram, which is vulgar history pod. On Twitter, we're at vulgar history. And also I want to mention on the Instagram, I, every now and then I post stories and stuff asking for ideas and suggestions and your thoughts about different people and that's how sometimes I find cool people to talk about for instance in like January of this past year I was like "Mm, who should I write about and then my Instagram friend Haley who I figured out who it was Haley bless you said like well what about Sophia Dorothy of Sella?" and I was like well I don't know who that is and then suddenly she became my muse for this whole season so if you like follow me on Instagram that's a way to have some informal contact with me as well and I guess that's everything oh I wanted to also say like I started this podcast like season one was pre-covid and then like everything else has been kind of during covid um and so that's why I started saying keep your mask on but now because of vaccines and stuff there's some situations in which you don't need to keep your mask on so I wanted to clarify because I can't change what I say because that's what I say at the end of each podcast and I can't change it because I love saying it. So if you look at, um, for instance, the movie um, Queen Margot, the French film, which actually I've, um, which is not streaming anywhere. I talked about it a while ago, but I've ordered a DVD of it and it should be arriving soon. And when I watch it, I think I'm going to do like a live watch of it on instagram or something anyway there's a very sexy scene in that movie where queen Margot, um before the massacre and stuff happens where she just like puts on a mask a zorro mask like just covering her eyes and just like this cute gorgeous dress with like a cape and she just goes to like have random sex with strangers in an alleyway because it's a real weird movie so i'm like well what about that kind of mask you know like i'm saying mask like a mask to help with covid keep that on or if you're in a situation where you don't need to keep that on then put on a sexy Zorro type mask and that can be your mask you have on I was almost thinking like with the Ana de Mendoza of it all I could be like keep your eye patch on tits out but I feel like her eye patch is her tits out you know it's like Frances Howard first got my attention through portraits because she has these wild necklines of just like look it's my tits and so I was like well who is this and then I read about her Ana De Mendoza, like her eye patch, had a similar effect on me where I'm just like, who's this person? Why is she wearing an eye patch? So, anyway, all of which to say, keep your mask on and your tits out. Hopefully, I'll talk to you all again real soon. <laughs>